This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. An innovative fermenter that's 100% made in the USA. No cleaning or sanitizing required. The Genesis fermenter from Brewcraft is all of that. Just place the sanitary inner liner in the Genesis, fill with your wort, and pitch your yeast. That's it. Not to mention you can't break it, it has built-in handles, and the opening is almost 6 inches wide. The Genesis Fermenter from Brewcraft USA is truly innovative and can be purchased anywhere Brewcraft USA products are sold. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his guilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote the best hobby there is, homebrewing. Join us today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, money-saving AHA member deals, and access to exclusive events and competitions. And remember, relax, don't worry, have a homebrew. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO, or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Hey everybody, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and the forthcoming Homebrew All-Stars. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. Now, I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Alright, on today's episode, episode 10, we'll head to the pub to discuss the Pacific Northwest Homebrewers Conference and talk about some pink washing and why it's a bad thing. And then, it's the episode we've been hyping for a while now. We're off to school to answer a whole bunch of questions. That's right, it's our all oh Q&A episode. So let's see what the hell we know that you're about and what the heck you're asking about. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. <laughs> and finally, we're going to close out the show with something other than the beer. Hey, you know, it happens. We have other interests, uh, at least one or two. Uh, we want you to know that you can support this podcast on Patreon. Uh, just go there and click on the Experimental Brewing link at patreon.com. Or you can do it the easy way. You can go to our website, www.experimentalbrew.com. 
and click on the link for Patreon there to support us. Uh, you can also click on the links for Brew Your Own Magazine if you'd like to subscribe to that. Or you can click on the link for the AHA if you'd like to join that wonderful organization who is now one of our sponsors. When you do any of those things, part of the money goes to support our podcast and our experiments. And most importantly, our charity, which is Freedom Service Dogs. They uh, rescue dogs and train them to be service dogs for uh, wounded vets and other people. And man, what a great organization. So uh, throw us some cash. We'll throw it to the pooches and help everybody out. Go dogs. So, uh, Drew, what kind of mail have we been getting about our session beer show? Uh, so we've been getting a lot of great mail from people uh, with feedback about session beers and their favorite session beers. So far, uh, thankfully, we haven't gotten anybody saying, oh, I hate session beers. You guys are lousy for talking about them, which sort of reinforces my faith in humanity. Uh, so, in fact, we've gotten such great feedback and so much traction about session beers and people's love for them that by the time this episode drops, there will be an article on the website that's going to cover a whole bunch of session beer ideas that we've gotten from some of our uh some of our buddies of the, of the podcast, uh, folks like uh, Marshall Schott, uh, John Palmer, uh, and other people that you know, and some people that you don't know, and uh, hopefully there'll be a bunch of great beer for you to drink. <laughs> really, man, that'd be way cool. Maybe I can finally find one I like. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, your American Mild's going to be on there, right? Yeah, it is, and uh, I'll just warn everybody, it's a work in progress, and that's the uh, the latest version, so. All right, but yeah, so session beers, uh, and just remember... I know it's going to be the middle of March and Session Beer Day is going to be April 7th, but that's actually plenty of time for you to pull off a Session Beer and have a wonderful, fresh, easy-drinking pint that isn't boring and terrible. Yeah, that's the one really, really great thing about Session Beers is you can turn them around really, really fast. Okay, I guess at this point, man, it's about time we head down to the pub for a beer and uh, talk about a couple other things, huh? Absolutely. Okay, see you there. Drew and I are sitting here in the pub at the corner of uh, everywhere and nowhere in your town, USA, having a couple beers and talking about the beer life. Uh, what are you drinking there today, Drew? Uh, well, you know, I know we've been talking about session beer, and I, I thought originally I was going to have a session beer today. But uh, instead, we just had the L.A. Uh, annual IPA festival, and one of my favorite little breweries, Highland Park Brewing, I think I've talked about them before on the podcast, won the festival yesterday with their Bonkers IPA, which is a West Coast IPA with Mosaic and Galaxy, and then uh, dry hopped with over three pounds per barrel of Simcoe. So, wow. Uh, uh, that's where it gets the name Bonkers from. It is a big hoppy beer. And, I mean, big in terms of the hop flavor and aroma. Uh, it's still 7%, so not quite a session, but damn good beer. Man, that sounds really great. I want to get Bob on the podcast because... Bob is a nutball, and his brewery is basically a home brewery gone mad. <laughs> as as so many of them can be sometimes. So, I'm uh, I'm drinking a sample of my Bark Pills beer. I uh, I got some Bark Pills malt to try out. Uh, actually, uh, I used uh, some of the uh, Imperial Organic Harvest Lager yeast on it, and. Uh, 
decided it was time to see where that beer was at and if it was ready to crash it and start lagering it. I used the fast lager method on it, so it was done in oh, just over a week. And uh, I used the, the quick carbonation method I talked about a couple uh, weeks ago for the quick tip, where I uh, take my gravity sample, put it in a PET bottle with a carbonator cap, hit it with 30 PSI, stick it in the freezer for 45 minutes, and I have a cold carbed sample of my beer that's uh, not just uh, wasted from taking a gravity sample. Uh, Drew and I will both be talking more about the Bark Pills malt as things go on, and uh, I'm about to post a report on uh, my initial uses of some of the Imperial Organic Yeasts, too. So, lots of new information coming down the pike here. Woo. Information good. Information good. So, uh, Speaking of information, how about if I fill you in on the uh, first ever Pacific Northwest Homebrew Conference? Oh, yeah. I, I totally think you should. I mean... After all, uh, this is a kind of a new thing, and you were sort of one of the stars of the thing. Yeah, well, that aside, the conference absolutely rocked. Uh, I got to give a huge shout out to the entire team putting it on, both the committee and all the volunteers. Everything went off without a hitch. It was a perfect example of a small scale NHC. The uh, professional brewers' night was great. The club night was great. The seminars were great. Uh, even even the food was great. Uh, you know, it, it's really really a good example. If some other region is thinking about doing your own little mini regional NHC, you need to talk to these guys because uh, they did a just bang up job, and uh, they're intending to bring it back next year, maybe in a different location. Which is great. Let's move it around the Pacific Northwest. But uh, if you guys live around here and you're thinking about going in the future, stop thinking and just do it. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right now, one of my hopes with these sorts of little mini conferences, because we're starting to see a few of them pop up, is I really, I really like them. And given that I work with the HA and you may possibly be working with the HA again, uh, and the HA was a sponsor of this one, uh, I'm really hoping that the HA will step up in terms of helping put together not the actual conferences themselves, but, you know, sort of guides about how to do it and offer sort of advice and help out, you know, because... Yeah, uh, agreed, and and they can really get a lot of advice from the guys that put on this conference. I mean, these guys, and I assume that uh, they'll be in close contact. Uh, Gary Glass, the AHA director, was here for the conference and spent a lot of time talking to the people who put it on and observing what they did. And uh, I, I got to say, it was just really, really nicely done. One of the uh, more interesting things from uh, all the commercial exhibits that were going on was uh, I, an experiment being done by Bader Brewing uh, up in Vancouver, Washington, where they had an extract beer and the same recipe made as an all-grain beer and uh, asked people... Not only which was which, but which they preferred. And uh, I'll just let you all stew about that for a while. And Drew and I will discuss the results uh, on an upcoming episode. But let me tell you, it was very interesting. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I, I really highly encourage if you have experimental results or things that you've experimented on or people that you know are experimenting, 
uh, let us know. We uh, we will gladly talk about it and uh, help spread the word about any of the results that we see. Yep, that's very true. That's very true. So tell me about pink washing, man. I, that's that's a new term for me. Uh, yeah, I wish it was a new one for me. Uh, all right. So uh, we try not to get uh, uberly political on this podcast because, well, uh, beer is better than politics. That's what Facebook is for, right? Well, I was going to say beer is better than politics. Uh, but I do want to talk about one thing that's always bothered me in the craft beer world. And that's sort of the weird uh, sexism thing that we see a lot. So the reason why I'm talking about this is a good friend of mine who is actually the director of the L.A. County Brewers Guild named uh, uh, Franny Michelle. Uh, she uh, she posted a comment from uh, an article, an interview given by uh, one of these little breweries that's been popping up in the area, uh, not too far away from me in Riverside County, where the owner and the only thing I can say is, well, I'm going to go Southern on you, is uh, bless his heart. I assume he meant well by this. It said, women are the undes- underserved part of the old craft beer market. We make sure mama's happy. Uh, when he was talking about his beers that include things like a peach honey wheat and a pumpkin latte stout. Uh. I mean, you know, I'm I'm willing to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. And maybe where he comes from or the people he hangs out with, that's the way they talk and think. And he doesn't mean anything as demeaning as it sounds like to me by it. But, uh, man, you know... It, if I was running a business and making a public statement, I guess I would be just a bit more circumspect in how I worded things. Well, it's it's not even the circumspect. Uh, to me, there's just um, there's sort of an uh, an old presumption that's going there about you know sort of gender and approach on on beer and the fact like oh the manly men like bitter beer and all that sort of fun stuff, but. Good Lord, the number of women I know who their favorite beer style is IPA is insane. Yeah, I mean, take my wife as an example, <laughs> and I'm not going on the old Henny Youngman joke. I was gonna say. Uh, my wife is 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 a fairly small person, but IPA is pretty much her favorite style, and she pretty much isn't interested in beer with less than 70 IBUs in it. So this whole this whole idea about how, how you have to have a, a chick beer, you know, a wheat beer with raspberries in it or something like that to appeal to women. Uh, that, to me, that's, that's a stereotype that just doesn't fit. And I know a lot of women who find it offensive. Well, and then to me, truthfully, the other thing that is the offensive part of it is also some of the asininely sexist marketing. You know, the, oh, the, man. the panty peeler type labels and all that sort of stuff. I, how many how many double D blonde ales have you seen out there? I mean, give me a break, people. Yeah. So here you go. If you don't agree with uh, agree with me about the fact that this stuff is sort of uh, terrible, then hopefully you can agree with me that this <laughs> sort of terrible. I love that. <laughs> I'm just trying to find a way to to put it politely. Uh, if you don't agree with that, this stuff is sort of terrible. Then can we at least agree on the fact that it's kind of sort of lazy and kind of sort of off-putting to over half the, the potential beer market? So yeah, and that that's my my thing too. It's like anybody with any kind of concept of marketing at all, and I admit that mine is vague, knows that you shouldn't go out there and offend half your potential market, even if you don't mean to. I mean, you know, 
I, I have no doubt that the the comment we discussed was made, you know, in, with the best of intentions, uh, and the guy maybe even thought that he was complimenting somebody or being cute or whatever. But you know, th- for your own good, think about what you're saying. Yeah, well, like I said, I, I know I'm a no fun neck uh, about this sort of stuff, but uh, yeah, uh, stop being lazy. Start being yeah. Uh, start being clever. Uh, and, yeah, clever and creative. Yeah, and, and that's kind of. I mean, you can still be crass with class. Ooh, crass with class. That could be our motto, huh? <laughs> 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 yeah, right. So, anyway, go ahead, flame us right in. Tell us uh, what you think of us for this. Tell us we're just taking it all way too seriously, and we'll say, okay, fine, but we're not. So. Okay, so there's our there's our take on pink washing in the brewing world. Uh, we're gonna get out of the pub, finish up our beers, and get on to the Q and A. Yeah, time to go to school, buddy. Yeah, well, believe me, I certainly had to. Okay, we'll be right back. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time we talked about beer? So come on in. Come on in. All right, everybody. Welcome to our first ever Q&A episode. All the stuff that we're about to cover is direct questions that we've gotten from listeners like you. Uh, So we've chosen out of the pile of questions that we have about 20 questions for today. Uh, We're going to categorize them and do segments for each of the different categories that we have. And I think we have uh, four segments, uh, Denny. Uh, That's the way I count, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Need new glasses. All right. So (laughs) we have uh, four segments. We're going to tackle each of them. We're going to index them individually for uh, listeners out there who don't necessarily want to dig through the whole pile of questions. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but. We have great fun doing these questions, and we're looking at doing this style of episode uh, possibly every 10 episodes, or maybe more frequently or less frequently, depending upon how everybody reacts to this. So, what that means is not only do we want your questions so that we have plenty of time to research answers, but we also want your feedback to tell us whether or not you find this sort of segment useful. Because if you do, we'll do it more often. If you don't, we'll shut up. (laughs) No, we won't. Yeah, okay, I know. You just like to say that. I, I consider it a threat that somebody's going to take me seriously on and then find out that I'm not serious. Yeah, right. All right. Okay, the first section of questions, uh, maybe some answers, is going to be about ingredients. And the first question comes from Lynn Noella, who asks the perennial question, What are your favorite hop combinations? What's the best way to understand and design great hop combinations for a pale ale or IPA? You first, buddy. My general approach with hoppy beers these days is to keep it simple. Uh, I know this is kind of funny coming from me again. You know, we always talk about this. I come up with goofy ideas, but in order to make the goofy ideas work, I keep a lot of elements of my beers fairly plain and fairly utilitarian and, and approachable. So I almost always will bitter with either Warrior or Magnum. If I'm doing something like a Pale Ale or an IPA, I will almost always use Warrior. And if I'm doing an IPA that I want to have a little bit of hop punch to, a little bit of that bite, I'll actually also add a small dose of Schnook. 
uh, and it just gives you that kind of like that kick in the teeth that you really need. Um, and then I don't really do uh, anything uh, until I get to the 15 minute mark, and I'll usually add like a 15 minute edition and a flame out edition, uh, and make sure that those actually mirror each other. And what I mean by that is they use the exact same hop combination. So if I have two different varieties of hops going in at 15 minutes, I'll use the exact same variety of hops at the Flame Out Edition. Uh, depending upon my mood, I'll dry hop, uh, usually straight in the keg, and I'll just drink the thing down before the hops go kind of grassy and weird on me. Uh, in terms of selections, I try and keep things uh, sort of in the same family. So spicy, citrusy, fruity, earthy. Uh, and I also try and keep myself to a minimum of flavor and uh, flavor aroma varieties in a single beer. So I'll start with, say, Warrior and Chinook, and then I'll blend in a little citrus and pine with Centennial and Columbus for sort of the American classic approach. Uh, with the sort of newer, sweeter uh, varieties like uh, Citra, Mosaic, Galaxy, you know, all the ones that are like the big mango, pineapple, tropical fruity ones that I don't think Denny likes. Uh, I'll try not to load in too many of those into the same beer because I kind of feel that they become a big sticky mess. Uh, way too quickly, uh, particularly with some of the ones that are almost kind of uh, so potently fruity, fruity they're almost uh, uh, sort of a rotten fruit thing, kind of like particularly I think of Galaxy that way. So there's my answer. A uh, couple of clean additions, almost always a very neutral bittering addition, keep things sort of in a family combination and mirror my additions. Wow. You know, um, I know it's going to be a real shock to everybody, but my philosophy is pretty much the opposite. <laughs> Um, first, let's just say, start by saying that I like the classic combos a whole lot. Uh, in an IPA, it is hard to beat a Chinook Centennial Cascade combo of hops. Uh, Amarillo and Simcoe together are another really classic one. I, I like you said, I, I do like the, the citrusy hops more than some of the newer, really tropical fruity ones. Uh, I, I find that those can make a beer too sweet for my tastes. Unlike you, where you try and stay in the same family, say with your like 15 minute and, and flame out editions, I kind of try to give it a bit more bread. I don't want to go too crazy and muddle what I'm getting out of my hops, but I also find that I prefer more of a of a, of a spectrum, I guess, of, uh, of hop character in there, as opposed to just reinforcing one thing. Uh, another thing that I've run across that I really like that I kind of stumbled onto with my IPA, my rye IPA is, uh, combining American and German varieties uh, or German based varieties. For instance, in the rye IPA, it's a combination of Columbus and, uh, Mount Hood. I make a, a porter that I really like that is done with Cascade and Tetanang hops, which turn out to be a really, really nice uh, combination. Something else that uh, I'm going to be starting to experiment with pretty soon is a theory that I heard Stan Hieronymus talk about at Hop and Brew School last fall. Stan talked about how adding just a little bit of Bravo, maybe 5 to 10% of your total hop charge, can kind of bump up and, and meld the other hop uh, flavors, aromas, whatever, together. Uh, I haven't really tried that yet, but I do have a pound of Bravo in the freezer, so it's something I'm going to be starting to experiment with. 
Any anything else to say about hop combos there, Drew? No, but I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll just put it out there. I'm right. You're wrong. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, he's no, wrong about that. No, no, no. You know, I'm using. Now, here, here's here's what I'll say is that, I mean, obviously, this is going to be a thing that comes down to personal taste. There are some people out yeah. there who like the, you know, sort of icky, sticky, you know, messy sort of IPAs with a jumble of flavors. That's not my bag, so that's why I, I keep the sort of family mirroring going on. Uh, Denny, uh, Denny is kind of an old school guy, which is why he likes his his classic combinations. But um, so yeah, really take our advice, give uh, give each of our approaches a shot, and if it turns out they don't work for you, guess what? You have a different take. So come up with <laughs> come up with your own and uh, and tell us what you did, Lynn. So yeah, really, Lynn, it doesn't really give you an answer, but it gives you some uh, info to try to experiment on your own. I hope you can take something from it. So just remember, if you take in my approach. Blend hops together that are complementary, but, you know, don't feel like you need to use 19 different varieties. Uh, maybe 17 will be fine. Our next question comes from Mr. Cullen Davis, who, by the way, designed our Dr. Igor Stein logo. Cullen wants to know, if you dry hopped a brew, you might end up with a nicely aromatic beer and a mesh bag full of soggy hops. Is there any reason you shouldn't throw those hops in a pot of water and boil them for an hour to make a kind of bitter hop extract that you can use to doctor other beer? Have you done this? Have you? Uh, I haven't done this in the way that he's talking about, So, but I have done something uh, similar. So back in the initial hop crisis, you remember when everybody was freaking out and uh, oh God, we don't have enough hops. hops went up to $30 a pound and more. Yeah, exactly. And you know, finally hop farmers could afford to make a living. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, back then, you know, some people ran to varieties like Argentinian cascades only to discover that the Argentinian cascades didn't taste like cascades. Uh, <clears throat> but what some people did do is start trying to reuse dry hops. And so this was actually being done at some professional breweries where they would take the dry hop edition out of a, a tank after it was being done, and throw it into the boil kettle of a beer that was currently being brewed. Uh, if I remember correctly, the measured IBU calculations that uh, happened out of that were basically, uh, you know, when they were doing the bittering, I think they were getting uh, about 80% of the normal bittering charge. So something like 20, mm -hmm. uh, 20 of, uh, re reduction. So Yeah, that's the way I remember it. Yeah, if you, if you are feeling... Uh, rather pecunious, uh, then I would suggest uh, you could try this. Uh, just you know, make sure you're pulling the dry hops on the same day that you're brewing because wet hops go bad quickly. And uh, toss them in your boil kettle and calculate them as if though they were 20% uh, weaker than they actually are. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't really have a lot other than that to say. Uh, that I have heard about people doing that. I haven't done it myself. Uh, I would be a little bit concerned about the condition of the hops but if they're for bittering it should be okay so give it a try what the heck and see what happens hey it's recycling <laughs> yeah right okay next question comes from igor bob givens that means he isn't igor that's not his first name <laughs> his question is on the best practices to extract flavor and aroma from peppers like serrano habanero and jalapeno without pulling too much of the heat Alcohol will disperse the capsaicin and therefore the heat. How can I make a tincture that pulls as much aroma and flavor without all the heat? 
Well, since this concerns weird ingredients and tinctures, this is a Drew question. All right. One, peppers are not weird ingredients. Peppers are something that are every day. Now, you may not agree that they're a normal beer ingredient, which is fine. But, um, yeah, so this is where I think uh, chemistry comes in handy. Uh, Bob already alluded to some of it with the uh, knowing about alcohol dispersing capsaicin because uh, capsaicin is uh, both fat and alcohol soluble. Uh but it's very, very lousy in terms of water, uh, water solubility. Now, this is the reason why, by the way, that when people are talking about, hey, if you want to deal with the heat of eating a chili pepper, the most effective thing that you can actually use out there is like a milkshake or a creamsicle because the dairy fat will actually pull everything off your tongue. Uh, I wouldn't recommend uh, beer because beer is mostly water uh, and a shot of vodka may actually hurt going down if you did that. Since it's fat and alcohol soluble, but lousy in terms of water solubility, thought that I had had once I read Bob's question, and I will put this out here, I've never done this, uh, but there may be some value to doing some straight up uh, tea making with the peppers or doing kind of a soak in water that's been treated with sulfite and sorbate. Uh, the sulfite and sorbate would prevent anything from uh, rising up to do fermentation. Remember that, uh, say, Tabasco is produced by taking chili peppers, grinding them up, mixing them with salt and vinegar, and allowing that to ferment. So chili peppers will ferment. Uh, and if you want to prevent the fermentation, then uh, sulfite and sorbet would uh, help with that. So make that, uh, make that tea, make that soak, toss them into the boil kettle. Now, here's my problem with it, is I think, or what I suspect, is it's going to extract all of the sort of green vegetal flavors uh, yeah, I would think so. And, and those are the things like the uh, uh, the pyrazines, methoxypyrazines, uh, which I talked about in our coffee and jalapenos article on the on the website. And methoxypyrazine is the thing that tastes very much like green pepper. I suspect that's going to even doing a water soak is going to pull those flavors, and those flavors may be what you want. And if that's the case, march forth and and give it a shot. Uh, they may not be what you want, in which case, uh, well, then that technique's no good for you. So my other thought. This is where I think dried peppers are actually really awesome. Uh, I have I do a lot of dry pepper soaks when I go and make things like chili, and I really, 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 really love those flavors. Uh, I find them to be remarkably pleasant and um, sort of different and interesting, fruity, leathery. Uh, sometimes they come off with uh, uh, aromas very similar to coffee because sometimes you'll hear people talk about uh, coffee beans having those sort of leathery, fruity uh, aromas and some chili pepper aroma. So I I actually really like dried peppers for this sort of thing because I think it also kills most of the vegetal character. But that's, it gives... That's a really good idea. Yeah, but remember, it's going to be a different flavor than the fresh pepper, right? So again, it all comes down to what it is that you want. Um, so... And let me just say for the record, I am not anti-pepper. Uh, I had a very bad experience with a Cave Creek chili beer many years ago, and I became anti-pepper in beer after that. Uh, I think everybody has the bad experience. I, I can tell by the laugh that you've had a Cave Creek chili beer. Yes, I have. I'll, I'll tell you about my favorite in a moment, because um, I, I have one other really sort of goofy idea, and this one I really have not played around with, and this is really totally just a thought experiment. But Bob, I would love it if you went and did this and report back to me and tell me if it worked. So we know that capsaicin is alcohol-soluble. It's also fat-soluble. So there's a possibility, a slim possibility, but a possibility, that what you could do is make an alcohol tincture with the fresh peppers. 
Let that sit and soak for, you know, five to seven days. Pull everything out of those peppers, right? Leach them dry. Once you're done with the soak, pull the pepper mass out and blend in a small portion of cassian powder or cassian powder. And cassian is uh, a milk protein. Uh, you find it a lot in, obviously, cheese, but also it's usually sold uh, separately as a weight building supplement. So if you blend in a small portion of that and then let that sit and then carefully strain it out, curious as to whether or not the cassias, uh, cassian, sorry, I'm always going to say that wrong, and we keep talking about capsaicin, so it's screwy. The cassian will pull the heat, maybe, because... Maybe, I, I mean, well, because, hopefully your beer won't go rancid. Well, because... It, 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 well, exactly, that's the reason why you have to strain very carefully, and I would recommend doing, like, uh, toss the tincture into a freezer, you know, really force the settling. Uh, because it turns out, uh, capsaicin has a real strong affinity for cassian. Which is the reason, again, why milk works so well. It's not just the fat. Mm -hmm. So um, maybe that will pull down the heat and the tincture, and that will actually make a very flavorful, fresh chili tincture without a lot of the heat. Yeah, it's a complete thought experiment. Yeah. I haven't done it, but it, it's something like reading through the chemistry, it, it, it made me think about it, and it's a possible uh, workaround. Interesting concept, and Bob, you're the guinea pig. Let us know how it goes. All right, now I'm going to tell you my favorite chili beer story because this one's a. Uh, there's a brew pub up in Santa Barbara, uh, and they have a they have a habanero pilsner. They have a con uh, their beer called the Condor Lager. It's called uh, a place called the Brew House, and it's right near the beach. And Condor Lager, it's a great a uh, great little you know no nonsense brew pub lager. But they also take corny kegs and go stash them in the, the walk-in. And before they rack the beer into the corny kegs, they add in uh, five or six habaneros, fresh habaneros. And then the beer sits and ages and they serve it. Now, you can get a rocks glass of their habanero pilsner, as they call it, for a dollar. And it is brisk and awesome and a completely variable experience depending upon how long the keg has been sitting on the habaneros. So, right. <laughs> and, and one of my favorite things they do with it is they make Bloody Marys with it. And those Bloody Marys are really good. Oh man, I can see it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I love the flavor of habaneros, but I, I, and I'd love to get that flavor without the heat into a beer. But, uh, anyway, Bob, tell us what happens. Uh, so we're on to the process questions now. Uh, you want to read the first one? Sure. All right. So uh, just real quick, uh, when we say process, what we're talking about here, these are the questions that deal with mashing and uh, fermentation controls and all the processy type things. This is really Denny's section because I'm not the process guy. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, our first question comes from Nikki Forster, uh, who is also an Igor, and you may remember was the one who prompted such interesting discussion on our rule pool experiment. Um, that's right. We, we refer to it as Nikki, the outlier. Yep. All right. So Nikki's question is, this is a continuing debate between me and my three brew besties, but I'm wondering if you can give us your impressions on the pros and cons of secondary transfer, uh, transfer and when it's suggested or necessary. It's my understanding. Yeah, it's a, a big question. It's my understanding that there's no need to transfer from primary to secondary for most styles. If you don't plan to add any extras to the secondary. This allows the yeast to do its job most completely, decreasing the chance of off flavors and sanitation issues with the transfer. My fellow lady brewers are big into transferring to secondary, regardless of the beer, positing that it's necessary to promote clarity and get the beer off the yeast. 
We also aren't on the same page when it comes to the length of time for primary and secondary fermentations. Could you please help? There may or may not be a wager on the line. I don't know, but you notice that Nikki uh, very carefully did not uh, say which side of the wager she's on. Ooh, do so we get a we're cut? Answering this blind. So, Nikki, that's a cruel thing because we may or may not be supporting you. All right. Yeah, that's right. At least in the bet. Here's here's my take on it, and then I'll let Denny go on, on his long <laughs> answer, I'm sure. Uh, the only times I transfer to secondary these days is when I'm really super stressed out about stressed out about the clarity and want to rack just to pull away from whatever's settled out, uh, or I need the fermenter space, or I want to add a flavor that needs time and and not a tincture. So that's things like uh, nibs, nuts, hops, et cetera, mushrooms. Et uh, so mushrooms. So literally, that's the only time I go to secondary anymore. Uh, not because I'm worried about infection risk or anything else, but more just the fact that I'm incredibly lazy and prefer to get the beer straight into the keg as fast as possible so I can yeah. start uh, drinking it. Uh, yeah, and for timing-wise, uh, she asked about uh, length of time for primary and secondary. Uh, I will leave beers in the primary fermenter for uh, up to a month. After that, I think you start to pull uh, some funky flavors. Uh, secondary, uh, basically until I either get around to it or the beer's clear and that's it. And so a lot of times that's either a, a month in primary. Usually I try and do only two weeks. Uh, sometimes the world gets away from me and in secondary, I've gone in secondary for as long as two years. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine, man. Uh, that means, that means you may be lazier than I am. We may have an answer to the question finally. Okay. <laughs> so first of all. Let's get this beer off the yeast thing out of the way. Uh, and I got to say, why? What's what's the issue here? Uh, if they're worried about autolysis, they need to realize that is pretty much a non-issue at the homebrew level. A little uh, empirical anecdote. A friend of mine once made a mild, left it in the primary for five months, and the beer was no worse than if he hadn't done that. So... Uh, you know, well, yeah, but wait, wait, hold on. Was the beer any better for having done that, or was the beer just going to be lousy to begin with? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to offend my friend, but he isn't listening. So, so I'll just <laughs> say that uh, you know, the the beer turned out exactly the same after five months in the primary as it would have uh, if he had gotten it out in two weeks. A lot of the fear that homebrewers have of autolysis comes from old literature. That's based in the commercial world. Now, you think of a commercial cylindroconical fermenter. It's tall. It's narrow. There is a huge column of liquid sitting on top of the yeast, putting a lot of pressure on it. That can lead to autolysis if it's left in there for too long and too much of that pressure bursts the yeast cells. Now, think about your homebrew fermenter. There, there ain't that much there, right? It's small... It's wider. Uh, it it there is just not the pressure on the yeast, uh, and very simply, the only thing you need to do is taste the beer that you've left in there for a while, and you can tell that there's no problem. That that just really is not an issue. Uh, you don't have to really worry about autolysis. Uh, maybe if you were going to leave the beer in the primary for two years, yeah, but anything in a kind of normal way, you'll be fine. Okay, so now when do I use a secondary? Well, not very darn often. Number one, I haven't found 
racking beer to a secondary promotes clearing. Uh, I've found that if you leave the beer in the primary for what would be the combined length of time between a primary and secondary, the beer will be equally clear. Uh, the very few times that I do use a secondary, kind of like mirror drews, if I'm going to add, say, fruit or sugars that are actually fermentable, I'll rack to a secondary first. If I'm going to add something like nibs, nuts, hops, or mushrooms, especially mushrooms, I'll rack to a secondary first. The other time I do it is when I'm dry hopping. Now, I know there are people who like to dry hop in primary, and the theory is that uh, with fermentation still going on, it blows out any oxygen that the hops might have entrenched in them that could get in and oxidize your beer. Number one, I've never found that to be an issue. And number two, what I have found to be an issue is that it appears that some varieties of yeast and some varieties of hops can interact and uh, really give you increased levels of geraniol and uh, a couple other things that I really find undesirable in my beer. I had read about this. Uh, Stan Hieronymus had talked about it in an article in Zymergy. And I actually have experienced that in my beers. Uh, after reading his article, I understood what was going on. So I brewed another batch. This is my rye IPA, which I know pretty well. And uh, made sure that I transferred it to secondary before dry hopping. And sure enough, I didn't get those undesirable characters in it. So uh, that's, that's pretty much my theory now, is I'm going to secondary before I dry hop. Okay, Hey, yeah. uh, Denny, wait, before we, before we move on, you dropped in one chemical name in there, and I don't think uh, some listeners will know uh, the oh, journal. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, it's like a, a rose kind of like quality or geranium kind of quality, uh, aroma mainly, uh, that it, it gives to your beer, uh, you know? And when I'm drinking a rye IPA, I, I don't really expect it or want it to smell like roses and geraniums. Right. I mean, it's it, the name literally yeah, comes right. from the flower yeah, yeah. geranium, and you, you also you also get it as an interaction between lactic acid and uh, potassium sorbate. Uh, FYI, if you ever do that with your meads and your ciders, uh, that happens over time. <laughs> Whoa! I didn't know that, but I guess I don't make much mead. So back to the length of time. Nikki asked, "How long a primary or and or secondary do you use?" Uh, my answer is pretty straightforward: until it's done. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's that's kind of the way it is. Um, I use my hydrometer to tell me when my fermentation is finished. I use my taste buds to tell me when the yeast has finished all its auxiliary duties, you know, the, the mystical cleaning up of the beer and all that kind of stuff. That's really all there is to it. Now, I can tell you that in my case, with my temperature control, most of my ales are done fermenting in four to seven days. Uh, at that point, uh, when I see no visible signs of fermentation, I take a gravity reading. I taste the beer for my gravity sample, and I decide what it's time to do next. It may be time to just leave it sitting there a while. It may be time to raise the temperature a bit. Or the beer could be just absolutely delicious and ready to finish out, and I crash it down to 33 for a few days uh, before I keg it and, and start drinking it. So really, 
there is no good answer. I always say the beer makes the schedule and the calendar doesn't. So pay attention to your beer. Take gravity readings when you think it's about done and let your taste buds and your hydrometer tell you how long is long enough. There you go. Or just do what I do and wait. Now, I do I, I do wonder, we talked a little bit about you know some of the yeast hysteria type things. I wonder just how much of the lore that we've been given as homebrewers about yeast and fermentation and periods and all this is really based off of the bad old days when people didn't understand yeast health. Yeah, I, I think that that is, you know, has a lot to do with it. And again, I think that um, the a lot of our current literature, or maybe not our current literature, but the literature that people have used in the past is based on commercial brewing practices. And for something like yeast, I think that there could be vast differences uh in, in the way that that is handled. Yep. Well, sounds like time yep. for more experiments. Yep. So yep. we can yep. get to yep. the bottom of it. All right. So our next, our next question comes in from Andrew Kodos. I uh, sent in via email. He says, I am interested in using five gallon corny kegs as primary or secondary fermenters. Can you give me more details how to do this? Do I need to cut the dip tube and how do I blow off CO2? All right, so my real quick uh, take on it uh, as a guy who uses corny kegs for uh, fermentation, I use 10-gallon corny kegs for fermentation because uh, five gallons are lousy primaries. I'm just going to say it. They're lousy primaries. I've never produced beer that is up to my standards in using a five-gallon corny keg. Now, of course, this is when we're going to get a whole flood of comments that I have. Well, yeah, well, and you've got, you've got super yeah, low standards, too. Yeah, I know. I mean, look, if you're me and you got my mug, <laughs> you need to have low standards. Um, but no, I think I think five gallon uh, corny kegs are, are terrible primaries for five gallon batches, uh, headspace and geometry and all that sort of fun stuff that's been talked ad nauseum uh, on the interwebs. Uh, however, for secondary, I think- Or for lagering. Uh, they're they're great fact, for lagering. Yeah, and for lagering. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, uh, I don't put my beer- once my beer is out of the primary, it pretty much is only ever in a barrel or a keg. So totally awesome for that. In terms of doing blow off, uh, some people uh, will pull the pressure relief valve completely out of the lid and put a small stopper in its place and put an airlock on there or blow off tube. Uh, others will actually remove the gas post and jam a tube over the, the remaining post that's there. Uh, or use a quick disconnect and put it onto the gas port and use that as a blow-off tube. I, again, go back to the lazy part of the world. I just simply crack open the, the pressure relief valve on top, you know, just like I'm trying to vent the keg, and cover it with a piece of sanitized foil. Yeah, Ta-da! yeah that's um, pretty much all there. All it really takes, man. Uh, just keep stuff from falling into it, because it's not going to crawl up and under. I, I'm pretty much on the same page with Drew. If you are... Dead set on using a five-gallon corny, uh, I would recommend maybe only making a three, three-and-a-half-gallon batch to put in it. Uh, keep your eyes out for a ten-gallon corny. I've got a couple that I ferment in sometimes, and I think that they're wonderful. Uh, in terms of cutting the dip tube, yeah, I find that a lot of times uh, it really isn't necessary, but you can certainly do that uh, if you want to do it. Should you ever discover that uh, you've cut too much off the dip tube or you need it full length, all you got to do is slip a piece of tubing back over the end of your dip tube and you're back in business. Wow. 
That sounded dirty, didn't it? Slip a piece of tubing over the end of your dip tube. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear you talk anything about dip tubes and tubing and slipping. Yeah, right. I, I know, man. It's it's disgusting, isn't it? Uh, anyway, uh, and like uh, like Drew mentioned, generally what I do for blow off if I'm fermenting a keg is. Uh, just attach a piece of tubing to a uh, a gas quick disconnect and put that into a uh, jar of water and use that for my uh, my blow off. And in terms of cutting your dip tube uh, for my ten gallons, I do uh, I do actually cut off the the tubes. I have I think I've cut off somewhere between a half inch to an inch just using a, a plain old tubing cutter. Uh, I will recommend. Uh, Something slightly different than Denny because uh, I don't necessarily want to have a piece of tubing hanging out inside my fermenter. Uh, I actually have uh, spare dip tubes. Oh yeah, well there's so I, I was thinking more if you ever wanted to put that keg back into use as a serving keg. Yeah, then you swap out the dip tube. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can you do. can do that if you have spare dip tubes around. I don't, uh, but I haven't ever found a need to uh, to lengthen it anyways. Our next question comes from Chris Nelson via email. Chris says, I'm thinking of doing more five-gallon batches split into one-gallon fermenters for different experiments. I've done this once before. I bottled it by pouring the one-gallon jugs directly into bottles using a funnel. My bottling bucket has about a half-gallon of dead space below the spigot, so that doesn't seem like a good way to go. I was wondering if there were any best practices for packaging one-gallon batches that you all could share. So, uh, Drew got in touch with uh, our friend Mary Isette and uh, asked her about it, because Mary brews a lot of small batches. What'd she have to say? Yeah, so Mary, uh, we've talked about Mary before uh, on the website, not necessarily in the podcast. She's the author of the book uh, Speed Brewing, which is actually from our same publisher for Experimental Home Brewing. And she's literally the person I know who does the most small batch brewing uh, because she lives in New York and has a New York City apartment. So not a lot of space. So her uh, her book is all about brewing small and doing a lot of interesting, playful things uh, with things like short meads, kombuchas, kefir, etc. So if you have any interest in like doing alternative fermentations or even just figuring out how to make a short mead, totally go look up Mary's book because it is very, very awesome. And also Mary and uh, her husband, Chris, have a uh, podcast as well on the Heritage Radio Network uh, called uh, Fermin About It. So here's what Mary had to say. Uh, She sees three options. Uh, Optimal, the most optimal option, a mini auto siphon for small batches of beer. The mini siphon, she says, fits in uh, most one-gallon jugs. Uh, She has a few vintage jugs that have too narrow of an opening, but her modern jugs accommodate the mini siphon. So mini siphon uh, as a start, you know, just use that basically to transfer and rack into the bottles. Uh, less optimal, she says, I haven't done this, but I guess that you could adapt a one gallon lid or stopper by fitting it with a nipple or something similar and attaching tubing with a small clamp. Then you could add a spring tip bottle filler to the bottom of the tubing and fill by placing the jug on its side or having someone hold it uh, for you. So basically sounds like make a, uh, uh, make a lid. Make some tubing, attach to that lid, and use gravity to pour out. You know, basically attach a very close funnel. <laughs> and then she said, even less optimal, I use a funnel with tubing attached to the bottom for some of my fresh non-beer ferments. It's easy, and if you're making a small batch and drinking it in a timely manner, is A-OK. But really, the, man- the mini siphon is the way to go. Plus, it's really cute. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. that, that's that's uh, that's Mary's response, and uh, Mary is definitely, like I said, an expert at the small batch brewing part. So totally to listen to her. Yeah, really. Uh, I mean, I've got to say that I've always been a bit baffled by the uh, auto siphon phenomenon uh, because I've never had any trouble siphoning. So I, I guess my uh, my more pragmatic solution would be to number one. Get a new bottling bucket with the spigot where it needs to be at the very bottom. And number two, then just siphon from the beer into the bottling bucket and use the spigot to bottle from. But, uh, you know, that's that's me. That's how I'd approach it. Well, but, you know, I mean, here's the thing is I, I'm not a, I'm not a huge mini siphon fan myself or auto siphon fan because um, it's just one more thing to break. And uh, yeah, practically right. since I have... Since I have CO2 and all that sort of fun stuff, I I pressure rack in very dangerous and stupid ways. Uh, so that's what I do. But I will completely admit that I feel some of Chris's pain because I would love to do more small batch type things. But I do sort of feel awkward when I'm looking at how to handle everything because all of my stuff is geared up for larger batch right. operations. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I totally, uh, I totally get it, Chris. But... Uh, Trust me, Mary knows what she's talking about, so uh, Mary's recommending the mini siphon, uh, so I would say give that a shot yep. and see how it works for you. I'd start there because uh, experience counts. Okay, so next question, Drew. All right, so our next question, and I'm going to have to apologize in advance because more than likely I'm going to screw up your name because I'm a dumb American with no sense of foreign pronunciation. Uh, this one comes to us from uh, Philippe Galinas, uh, who emailed us and said, uh, first, I want to say that I'm a big fan of what you're doing. Woohoo! Uh, I listened to your podcast with Brad, uh, uh, Brad Smith of Beersmith, uh, when I did a podcast last year, and read Experimental Brewing as well. Uh, about the book, I have a quick question about batch sparging. In the book, you said that we should batch sparge at 180F. Uh, I'm wondering, what's the temp goal in the mash ton? I did the batch sparge at 180, and when I mixed the hot water with the grain, the temperature dropped to about 156. I'm wondering what's the ideal temperature. If I had more grain, if should I sparge with a higher temperature water? This is a batch sparging question, so that's you, Denny. <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I, my goal is a grain bed temperature of 168 to 170 degrees, optimally. Uh, to get that, my sparge water usually runs about 185 to 190 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. But truthfully... The grain bed temp and water temperature don't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, if you use hotter water, you can make sure that you get the grain bed temperature up to get the last little bit of conversion out of your grain, and that might boost your efficiency a tiny bit. On the other hand, I've experimented with sparging with uh, 60 degree Fahrenheit water and didn't really find uh, much of a decrease in efficiency at all. So in truth, it, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Uh, set yourself a goal of 168 to 170. And if you're a little bit below or above it, then not, not really a big deal. Now, let's look at another myth here that's been around forever. And that is that you need to keep your sparge water under 168 degrees or you'll extract tannins from your grain. Number one, as we discussed uh, a, a minute ago, the issue is your grain bed temperature, not your water temperature. And number two, 
Have you ever heard of a decoction mash? You boil the grain, and that gets a lot hotter than 168. So the key is keeping your pH in line. Uh, keeping your pH low enough is the key to not extracting tannin. And if your pH is correct, under under six for sure, uh, then you really don't have to worry too much about the water temperature, just like you can boil grain into decoction and not have to worry about tannin extraction. All right. And so to add on to what Danae's uh, talking about, I've seen experiments out there with people, and uh, maybe we should do this at some point, uh, where people have sparged cold and seen a minor drop in efficiency, but uh, nothing major. So I think in terms of your overall temperatures, stay somewhere in the ballpark, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't fret it too much. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, but what about mash out and going up high so you can fix your sugar ratio? Well, that's the other thing is people have to remember that if you really want that, you have to be up at mash out temperatures for quite a while in order to get enough of a, a kill on your enzymes to really fix your sugar ratio. Yeah, that's, and, some, that's something that people overlook a lot is yeah. that, uh, you know, you can't just raise the temperature to 170 and say you've denatured the enzymes. It, it takes 20 minutes or so to do that. If you're batch sparging, there's really nothing to gain from a mash out. Because you get to a boil so quickly, and let me tell you, nothing denatures the enzymes in there like boiling them. There you go. So, yeah, I mean, it's not an instant kill switch, but I would say uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're fine. Yeah. As, long, as, long as, you're, as long as you're getting beer out the other side and you're getting uh, appropriate extract, uh, everything else is sort of water under the bridge. Yep. Or and, work, and remember, I'm going to say it cup. once again, correct pH is the key to not extracting tannins, <laughs> not temperature. Well, and that leads us into our next question. Yes. All right. Uh, from uh, Blair Street, who says via email, I've seen this one battered around a lot in forum discussions, some including Denny, but I've never found one with a satisfactory answer. If the ideal mash pH for a specific style is 5.3, are we talking about a sample measured around 150, uh, the mash temperature, or about around 68 degrees hydrometer sample temperature? It seems there's about a, a 0.2 pH differential between the same sample at mash and hydrometer temps. So if it was aiming for a 5.4 at mash temp, that same sample would be 5.2 when cooled to 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Since pH is a logarithmic scale, that's a big damned difference. And I've experienced significant difference in final beer flavor and final beer pH based on these variations as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we should be targeting, as well as any guidance on techniques you use to measure or styles where you actually manipulate the mash pH for a specific recipe in your own brewing. And since, again, this is pH-y type stuff, and that's process, Denny. Okay, well, um, for, for information about pH, I went to my personal pH god, Martin Brungard, uh, and uh, pulled some info that he had uh, posted on the AHA discussion forum. Uh, this is what Martin says. pH should be referenced only to room temperature. Don't worry if the pH temperature adjustment factor is 0.2 to 0.35. It just doesn't matter if you just measure at room temp and adjust your mash according to that measurement. Measuring the mash pH at the mash temperature is really hard on the pH probe, and trying to ascertain the true mash pH is not a good idea. The biggest reason to standardize on using a room temperature pH measurement. Always aim for a room temperature pH as your standard. All the recommendations for pH range in Brunewater are based on room temperature measurement. Uh, in general, 
I personally, and this is this is back to me. This is not Martin's info. In terms of pH range, uh, I go for a lower pH, like in the 5.2, 5.3 range for a, a crisper beer, and a higher pH maybe in the 5.4 to 5.6 range for a more mellow uh, malty beer. But the the key to remember is that anytime you see a pH measurement suggested, that should be based on a room temperature measurement. Uh, if it's not, the person who's giving you that pH measurement better specify that it's not. But in general, all pH measurements should be referenced to room temperature. Does that make sense? And, and particularly, well, yeah, and particularly if you look at some ways of measuring, because uh, we didn't get a a means of measuring uh, how how he's doing the measurements. Uh, but particularly some things like, for instance, uh, papers are temperature dependent and really only read at those room temperature levels. Right. So even with a pH meter, which you can stick into the mash, it's not recommended because you'll be reducing the life of the, uh, the probe on it. And uh, that costs you money. And again, any measurement you read, should correctly be referenced to room temperature. So if you're measuring the pH directly in the mash, of course you're going to be off because that's not the way that the pH you were given was measured. Yeah, and I'll I'll throw in one final piece of uh, uh, my feedback, which is based on the flavor aspect of the whole question. Uh, I usually can't be bothered with pH because uh, for most of the stuff I'm brewing, it's not going to matter. Um, because it has no flavor anyway? Yeah, exactly. Um, now, I mean, so I know a lot of people care about, you know, pH manipulation and tracking to, you know, depend upon things for like sours or tracking mash efficiency. Usually I'm going to say if uh, you're worrying about your mash pH uh, because you're worried about how efficient you're being, you're in a different level of worrying about your efficiency than I think most homebrewers could ever get to. Uh, on things for sours and whatnot, I need to finish doing these experiments because one thing I don't like is people using pH for uh, determination about uh, beer sourness and beer flavor. And the reason why I say this is because you see all these people out there and they go measure like, Oh, look, my Berliner, my Berliner Weisswort is in the kettle and it's at 3.2 or whatever, 3.4 pH. pH is not a good scale for organoleptic sensations. It's good for measuring the amount of the hydrogen ions in, in the wort, but it's lousy for telling you exactly how acidic tasting your wort is. So what I would really love to uh, get people to start using and what I'm going to start writing up is a technique from the wine world, which is uh, TA or total acidity or titratable acidity, because that's what winemakers and cider makers and mead makers are using to actually determine how acidic their beverages are. Yeah, and, and by how acidic, I mean how acidic flavored they are. So if you ever hear winemakers talk about a wine that's really tight or bright, they're talking about a wine that has a large amount of acid to it, and they measure that via TA. Now, the problem is that TA does not have, you know, to measure your TA actually involves uh, doing titration for the most part, you know, which is not as simple as a pH probe or a pH paper. 
but it is, in terms of what we actually really care about in terms of the flavor, a far more accurate measurement. So expect to see that sometime later this year where we're actually going to talk about TA because, damn it, brewers need to learn that lesson. Yeah, I think that that's, that's really good for some things. Obviously, for other things, uh, pH is going to be more important to know, but, you know, uh, it's a good thing to have a handle on both. And, oh, uh, yeah. No, P- pH, pH is king when it's, like, you know, mash chemistry. Right. Absolutely. But when it comes to acidic flavors for things like sour beers, right. it should be TA. And people totally. need to start using it. Totally agree. And while we're talking about pH, I, let me just throw in one uh, other little interesting tidbit here that's been a topic of discussion on the AHA uh, forum recently. And that is the observation that pH kind of naturally tends to settle into the correct range, which is really a bizarre concept for me. But uh, a number of people have noted, and Martin has confirmed, that generally, if you look at your pH early in the mash, it might be a little low, it might be a little high, but by the end of the mash, a lot of the time that pH is going to settle right around the 5.4 area. So don't freak out at the beginning of the mash if your pH is way off. Wait until the end and see what happens. There's a good chance that it will end up in the right range. And if it doesn't, at least you'll know what's happening and you can correct for it the next time. Well, I mean, I think this falls right into line with uh, your philosophy. Yeah, that's very true, man. Yeah. Malted barley wants to become beer and uh, give it time to do that and pay attention and take notes. And uh, remember, it's only beer. If you screw it up, you can fix it the next time around. Okay, so that's our process segment. We're on to style. And speaking of style, I guess that's Drew's area because he's such a stylish guy. We got an email from Justin McLeod who says, Drew, I know you love smiles. Where do you normally carbonate them at? I wanted to go a little higher than what the style calls for as I don't want to change my kegging setup. All right. Well, Justin, uh, first thing, I normally carbonate my beers at the brewery. (laughs) So that's where we're going to start. No, uh, all right. And yeah, uh, sometimes emails are emails. Uh, I usually keg uh, my miles somewhere around the 1.5 to 2.0 volumes of CO2. Uh, some people would argue that's high for the style. Uh, that's the reason why I tend to stay down around uh, 1.5, um, which is more in the traditional ballpark of what people would expect if you had this on cask. Uh, I will sometimes... Uh, keg condition these, although not very often because usually I have to transport them for festival. And if I have to transport them for festival, I don't have enough stillage time in order to get them to settle back out. So uh, usually force carbonate to uh, 1.5 to 2.0. Um, now, if you're worried about, okay, so I have a beer at 1.5, I have all these other beers at like 2.5, 3.0, and my kegging setup is all generated, is all dialed in for those beers at 2.5 to 3.0. The easiest, dumbest trick that it doesn't involve going out and getting an adjustable secondary regulator would be just to do what we would do in college, and we had a party, and we didn't have enough CO2 to correctly distribute out to everything, which is basically uh, pour beer, hit with gas periodically, uh, and then at the end of the evening, uh, hit it with uh, the proper amount of gas, get the pressure back up to the level that you want it at, and then just remove the line from the keg, and... Literally, that's all I do with uh, some of these things. And I've done that with my milds, and I've left them in pretty good nick for, you know, a month or two before the beers start to kind of go south as a 2.5 to 3.2 beer will do. So 
that's my suggestion. 1.5 uh, is optimal. 2.0 is probably easier. And then uh, don't sweat about keeping the uh, CO2 on the line the entire time. Cool. Good advice. Good advice. If I uh, if I made more miles and kegged them, I would probably follow it. But uh, <laughs> I don't. So, uh, you know, I'll wait until I do and then give it a try. There you go. All right, so our next question comes from uh, Paul Nikodem, who is uh, down in Australia and was actually just working at LAX around the corner from my office a few weeks back. And he says here, of all the styles you've been brewing and the many variations over the many, many years of home brewing you two have, is there any style of beer you just don't like or don't want to go back to? I myself am bored stiff by lagers, no matter who's brewing them. The Belgians, the Germans, the English, or us Aussies. Lager just bores me to tears. So I'm I'm going to assume that when Paul says uh, lager, he means pale lager. Yeah, and I'm going to address that generic. too. Um, but uh, my immediate uh, knee-jerk reaction when I saw this email from Paul was uh, steam beer, California Common. I've I've made a few of them. They're all right, but they're not anything I particularly want to go back to. Particularly at least the ones that are done in sort of the traditional uh, anchor profile with. Uh, that minty hop character that they all have. So I don't know, for some reason the style just never sits well with me. And I'm saying that as a guy who I'm not a huge Pilsner person. I'm not, uh, I'm not a huge, uh, definitely not a huge American lager person. Uh, the new international lager and all the various styles of Czech beers don't really do much for me. Uh, I do like Hellas. I do like Maybach. But yeah, of all the of all those sorts of beers that bored the hell out of me, it would be steam beer. And I do love a good cream ale. So I'm weird. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's well established. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of steam beers either, although I have to admit that the last time I had an anchor steam someplace, my first thought was, this is better than I remembered it. Uh, I better look into this more. For me, in general, it's British styles that I just cannot get into they tend to be too earthy or fruity for my tastes, usually. Uh, although I do really enjoy an occasional Fuller's 1845. There's something about that beer that I really like. I would say that that's, you know, probably probably British styles and things like cream ales, blonde ales, stuff like that are the ones that I really don't care for a lot. Uh, I well, am- but Denny, let's, let's be frank. It's probably not British styles that you hate. It's just the fact that so many British beers use Fuggles. <laughs> well, I have to admit that that's one of the things I don't like about them, and that's that, that earthy, woody thing I was talking about. Um, I am in a big lager fan, I have to admit. Uh, I make German pills pretty frequently. Uh, I love things like Bach and Doppelbach, Maybach, uh, Dunkel. Man, do I love Dunkel. Uh, so when I hear Paul say he's not a lager fan, I have to wonder if he's really explored the whole world of lagers. Uh, if you're thinking of your basic uh, American industrial lager, uh, then I can really understand why he might not like something like that. But on the other hand, Paul, I would encourage you to get out there and explore some of the other lagers that are out there, because I'll bet you you're going to like some of those. Okay. Next question comes from Joey Nix via email. Joey says, I was listening to your podcast where you mentioned focusing on lower calorie beers this year. This is also my focus for the year as I have a weight loss goal. 
Being a beer guy and dieting can be hard but doable. Drew will tell you all about that. I am reaching out for some pointers on recipes that don't compromise on flavor. Do you have any that you can share? Web search has not been overly helpful in this area. Thanks for the time, and I'm really digging the podcast. Yes, we love to hear that. Keep it up and cheers. Well, Joey, I'll tell you, it, it is elusive and difficult for sure, and I haven't really mastered it. I'm still searching for it. Uh, I can do it. I can I can make a, a pretty good beer that's maybe about 5.5% or more, but under that, I'm still like seeking for uh, what the, the keys to flavor are and how to really make a flavorful low-alcohol beer. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm looking forward to seeing some of these session beer recipes coming in from everybody. Give me some ideas for things to try. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Skinny and looking good, what's your secret? Uh, gin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's, that's always the answer, but, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, is, that is actually part of the answer. But no, uh, in reality, here's the thing. The key is, it's all about the alcohol. That's the reason, part of the reason why I've been so uh, kind of hyped up to really sort of promote the Session Beer Project, because alcohol is by far and away the big killer in uh, calorie-wise in terms of beer. And no matter what anybody tells you, it, ethanol, ethanol, ethanol. Now, having said that, also, if you're going to go for you know something that you want to have uh, more dietetically appropriate, shall we say, uh, drier is better as well because you're also looking at uh, less remaining residual sugar. Your real degree of fermentation being higher is what you want to see, right? You want to see more of that sugar gone converted into ethanol. Now, the real trick then is, well, hey, hotshot, great. If I get rid of all the sugar, uh, that means one more alcohol. And two, that means there's not a lot of other stuff left behind. So this is where I really dig in on the idea of using oats and other techniques to kind of build... Uh, other sorts of uh, proteinaceous materials in the wort to actually make the wort feel fuller, right? So that's the reason why you'll see a lot of my, my beer recipes containing things like oats and wheats and whatnot, just to kind of give that extra sort of thickness to the beer to allow it to stand up. Now, and you'll see that in the session beer uh, article that we're going to have published. My contribution is my pale oat mild, which uses malted oats. Now, Having gone beyond that, so we know you've got to keep it low in, uh, low in alcohol or lower in alcohol. Uh, you want to keep it dry. Uh, so I actually really like Belgian styles in this world. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is a good old-fashioned Saison. Everybody expects Saison to be, you know, very bone dry. And so, therefore, you don't have to worry about, like, with a British ale or something with a lot of hops in it, uh, keeping some sort of residual body around. Plus... Just like what I recommend with people when they're dieting, you know, you're used to using creamy sauces or fats like butter and olive oil to really kind of kick up your flavors. You know, when I'm cooking for a dietary cut, I will skip over a lot of the oil and a lot of the butter and that sort of thing in favor of using spices, chili peppers, salsa, that sort of thing to really kind of give me more uh, more bang on the, the palate. So again... Belgians and Saisons, to me, really allow you to play around with additional flavors that don't add calories to the thing. So, there you go. There's my advice. Lower alcohol, uh, more flavor via other additions, and make them nice and dry. Now, having said all that, the other thing to do is if you're like Denny and you like your beers at 5.5%, 
Well, begin to learn where you're, uh, how many of those calories you can have at your 5.5%. Enjoy the living hell out of the beers that you're having and, you know, just make sure they fit. Also, keep in mind, you know, your weight loss is not a temporary thing. It's not a sprint here. You're not trying to lose as fast as you can so you can go back to your old lifestyle. You are literally trying to set yourself up for success for the rest of your life, which means that you also have to adjust to the idea that it's okay to go out there and have a pint or a half glass of, you know, your 13.5% barrel-aged Russian Imperial Stout with the understanding that that just means, okay, you've got some more work to do or you may not be having as many calories the next day. It's all going to have to even out in the long run if you want to maintain a lower weight. So there you go. Yeah. Dietary rant off. Good advice from a man who has lost over 100 pounds and still drinks beer. I'm totally impressed. Yeah, well, uh, as of uh, as of two weeks ago, it was 110 pounds total. Congratulations, buddy! I'm I'm seriously impressed, and I'm disgusted with myself for not being able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie. Our next style question comes from Tim Stoltz via Facebook. Tim wants to know what's a good grain bill to do a split batch with English yeast and one with Belgian yeast. Hey, this one's right up my alley. Yeah, go for right. it. Uh, so, yeah, and actually, I wrote a column about this last year for Beer Advocate that ended up winning a, a national award, which was awesome, uh, because there is a very long history of sort of cross-collaboration between the Scottish and the Belgian brewing industries. Uh, it all goes back to World War One. After the Germans and the English and everybody else had stolen every bit of metal from Belgian breweries to basically turn into arsenals to throw at each other. The brewing industry there in Belgium was sort of at a loss. They were also hit with the weird form of Belgian prohibition that was in place for a long period of time where the Belgians didn't forbid alcohol, but they banned spirits. So the Belgian brewing industry uh, in a fit of wisdom went and decided, Hey, you know, we should make strong beer because strong beer will replace the spirits that everybody's used to drinking, right? You know, the Belgians loved their Dutch gin, their Geneva. So let's make strong beer instead. And at the time, uh, they turned to the folks at in Scotland because Scotland was famous for some of these strong beers that they were making at the time, you know, like the Scottish Wee Heavies and whatnot. So uh, so much so that the, the fellow who founded uh, or who was running the Morgat Brewery at the time, which you mostly know for making Duval, uh, went over to Scotland and basically learned what they were doing and took back a sample of McEwen's ale yeast. So the Duval strain that we all know and love is actually a mutated form of a Scottish ale strain. So that's a long way to go around saying, what's a good uh, grain bill to do a split batch with English yeast and Belgian yeast? Well, I'm going to say do a big, heavy, strong Scottish ale. And so the one that I ginned up for this, uh, this particular article, and I've done a couple times, I call it uh, Victory Belgian Scottish Ale. And for five and a half gallons at 1083 and 27 IBUs, 17 SRM, and 9% alcohol, you throw in 15 pounds of either Belgian or Scottish and English pale malt. I usually actually do use Maris Otter because I usually have that on hand. Uh, a half a pound of Special B, uh, two ounces of a Carafa 2 Special. You know, that's the dehusked German because uh, I like the ironic part and I don't tend to like a lot of roast. And then I also use one pound of brown sugar. I mash that for 60 minutes at 152. Hop it with a half ounce of Magnum pellets for 60 minutes. 
and then pitch with your favorite uh, strain of yeast. Uh, and if you really want to be fun, do your Edinburgh strain in one and do the uh, the Duval strain, the Belgian Strong Golden uh, strain in the other one so that you can have some uh, historical continuity. And that's what I would do because I've done that and I enjoy it and it makes some <laughs> really, really good beers. Wow. That's a that's a really good idea. And you're right about the historical continuity part. That's kind of cool that uh, that it works out like that. One of my favorite stories about the the brewing industry is the fact that Duval, which we all know and love as this sort of bright, golden, strong uh, butt kicker of a beer, started off as Morgoth's Victory Ale, which is the reason for the name, and was actually a brown beer. And stayed a brown beer, I think, until the 60s, hmm. when they decided, maybe we should make this thing pale because of all these pilsners. Right, right, right. Okay, so now we have two Cezanne questions in a row, which means I get to just kind of sit back here and take a nap while Drew talks. So, uh, all right. first question comes from Aaron Bess via email. He says, hey, Drew, I enjoy your column in Beer Advocate, and I know you wrote an article for your Malthouse Falcons for, on Cezanne's. I'm about to pull the trigger on some yeast-based strains, the Vermont yeast and a Cezanne strain, what Saison strain do you recommend for a home brewer who ferments in a garage in the Pacific Northwest with summer temps averaging 60 to 65 degrees? Well, the first thing I recommend is get a heater. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, because, yikes. Uh, no, if, if you will have trouble doing just about any Saison strain down at that level. I mean, now I tend to... I tend to start my saisons down at that level, which is in that article that Aaron's referring to on the, on MaltoseFalcons.com. Uh, so I start my saisons down around 63, but then I let them ramp up. Now, of course, I live in L.A. where my garage during the summer gets to 110. So I have a slightly different temperature profile than you do. Uh, however, having said that, uh, depends upon what you want. My favorite of the East Bay strains uh, for the saisons is the Walloonian Farmhouse, which is also arguably the uh, least uh, difficult and exciting one. But if what you want to do is really pull off something Cezanne uh, at your temperatures without doing uh, some heated fermentation, then what I would recommend is uh, look at one of the farmhouse strains that he has, like I think uh, the Cezanne blend that has Britannomyces in it, because that will also help you out. And Brett has no problems usually working cool. So there's your quick answer. Walloonian farmhouse, if you can heat it. If you can't quite heat it, then uh, look at one of the strains with the Brett. Uh, I have personally have not had any of the strains from uh, East Bay that I thought were terrible. So go for it. Okay, there is Saison question number one. Here comes number two. Matt Yoakum says via email, thanks for the great podcast. I really enjoy it. Yes, we love Matt. I am brewing a Saison in Minnesota and started it at 68 degrees Fahrenheit when I pitched my yeast using a combo of WLP 565 and Y yeast 3724. Aren't those about the same thing, Drew? They're supposed to be two different monomers of, of DuPont. Okay. So they're, it's Bel uh, White Labs 565 is Belgian Saison 1 and Y yeast 3724 is uh, Belgian Saison. Okay, cool. So uh, Matt says, I'm fermenting in an open fermentation with a carboy with foil, but with a slight modification. I cut out multiple holes in a carboy cap so I could have a stainless steel dip tube in the middle of the beer for my thermostat probe, but still have open fermentation with foil over that. Clever. Anyway, you had recommended that after two or three days at your starting temperature, you like to let the yeast ramp up the temp on their own. 
My yeast did not seem to do that, even though it appeared that they were actively fermenting. So I used a heat wrap to slowly increase to 75 degrees and then 80 degrees over the course of 5 to 10 days. I'm not sure if this is due to the difference in ambient temps here, 65 degrees Fahrenheit inside, freezing outside, versus California, but I was wondering if I should have been more patient or if ramping up the temp was the right thing to do. I was hoping they'd get to the 75 to 80 degree range to give these supposedly good flavors. Also, just because that isn't enough, do you have thoughts on whether bottling Cezanne's Belgians for re-fermentation is worth it versus force carbonating in a keg? If you recommend bottling, can you use the plastic swing tops or do you need to cork them? Go for it, man, and then I'll, uh, I'll toss in my thoughts on the bottling at the end. All right. So the problem that you experienced is exactly what you think. The laws of thermodynamics in Minnesota are different than the laws of thermodynamics in California. Uh, and by that, I mean, yeah, the freezing temperatures outside are really going to uh, put a damper. Your yeast are only going to be producing so much heat. So, yeah, they're going to have a hard time uh, getting over those freezing temperatures versus, again, my garage at 110. Uh, it's always fun to realize that people have differing challenges. So... In terms of what you did, uh, you know, letting it go for two or three days naturally and then adding heat to it, uh, I think that's absolutely fine. Uh, as long as you're doing a slow ramp, I think you're, I think you're coming close enough to the, to the idea of what the yeast are going to be doing to help them out and get into those flavor ranges that you wanted. The one thing I will caution people about, and I've seen people do this, uh, the reason I talk about pitching cool in that uh, 63, 65 range early and then laying it ramp after a couple of days is I want to control the ester and phenol uh, generation uh, and also the fusel alcohols uh, that get generated. And by the way, if you want to read more about this, uh, we have a brand new uh, blog on our website uh, from Saccharomyces uh, that talks about what exactly esters and phenols are. So totally go read that. But I like to control those. I like to suppress them down because what I've found in the past, I know a lot of people love to have the advice out there. Oh, Saison, Saison's love heat. Don't worry about your, your cooling temperatures. Yeah. Uh, chill the thing down to like, you know, I don't know, 75 degrees or 80 degrees and pitch your yeast into it and let it go. They'll be happy. I've done that. I hate the beers those produce. Uh, almost always they have a fusel uh, alcohol character to them that I do not like. Yeah. And and I, would, I would say I, that that's true for, any beers, but especially especially Belgian styles. Somehow they got the wrap that you know. If it's ninety degrees outside, brew a Belgian beer because they like the heat. Uh, well, I mean, in truth, they do. But I'm, I'm, only at I'm the end of fermentation, that, you know, though. Yeah, you've got you still got to start off properly, and then because one experiment I did uh, years ago, I did a big split batch of saison uh, wort, and that's actually the thing that is the foundation of that saison article he's talking about on MaltosFalcons.com. And one of the batches I did, I did with uh, WLP 565, and I did it in two variations. I did it cool temp, allowed to naturally ramp, and then I did the other one where straight out of the boil kettle, we chilled it down, and then immediately hit it with a brew belt, and ran that brew belt right up to 85 degrees and pitched the wort into, uh, pitched the yeast into that, and let just you know kind of go with the hammer down, and easily by far and away. The worst of those beers was the one that we did with the heat wrap on it because it was just terrible. So, again, Matt, what you did to slowly ramp up your temperatures and allow them to kind of get some more heat, 
perfectly fine. And it's a, a, absolutely the sort of thing I would expect that you'd have to do in a place like Minnesota where you have actual like cold weather. <laughs> Seasons and um, stuff like that. What about what about yeah. the uh, bottling versus kegging and forced carbing issue? Uh, all right. So two thoughts on that. I keg almost everything because I always tell people if I hadn't started kegging around batch six, I probably would have stopped brewing beer around batch seven. So I keg almost everything and force carbonate it. Uh, however, I do have a lot of experience, obviously, if you've read the champagne beer articles with doing champagne style beers, uh, they work perfectly fine. I don't ever repitch yeast when I do it because, again, I pitch, a, I pitch a ton of healthy yeast when I go do the fermentation. And I don't think there's anything magical about corks. I think your swing tops are going to be absolutely fine. When I do the sh- when I do the Belgian style champagne beers, I do those with the plastic uh, plastic champagne corks that you hammer into the top and then put a cage around. And I do all that by hand. Those work fine too. Actually, sometimes those have issues uh, where they leak a little. Uh, but in terms of added expense and added time and added labor and added blah 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 blah. I've got enough things going on in my life that I don't need to spend it bottling with special corks. Yeah, and I I pretty much feel the same way. I keg probably 99% of my beer. Um, I bottled uh, my 400th batch about five years ago because it was a Belgian quad, and I wanted to keep some around for five or six years and see how it aged. And I'm happy to say that after five years, I still have three bottles left. Uh, I just recently bottled a batch of beer that I had made, a Golden Strong with Matsutake mushrooms. But I did that because it was such an unusual beer. I wanted to be able to share it with people and give it away. I don't bottle beer because I feel like there's any advantage flavor-wise or anything else to bottling it. Uh, My taste buds have told me that over and over again. So being as lazy as I am, I'm not going to do all that extra work if I don't have to. Yay, laziness. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. And yeah, swing, like Drew said, swing tops are absolutely fine. They're just bottles. There's nothing uh, magical about caps or corks or anything else. So if you've got them, make sure that the rubber seals on them are good and use them. Okay, now we have the yeast questions. The first one comes from I'm No Expert on Homebrew Talk and is echoed by Zachary Keem via email. I'm No Expert says, can I add champagne yeast to a high-gravity beer to drive the final gravity down, or will champagne yeast ferment the more complex sugars that most brewers' yeast can't? Some say that champagne yeast can only ferment more simple sugars. Others say it's worked for them. I've tried it and didn't notice any change, but it did work well at bottling time for conditioning. Zachary says, All my internet research reveals people matter-of-factly stating, No, champagne yeast only eats simple sugars. They're not capable of digesting maltose. But champagne yeast and ale yeast are the same species, right? So theoretically, they should have the same digestive pathways. I mean, I have a cocker spaniel at home, but he'll eat the same thing as a wolf given half the chance. Maybe if you mash at 147 and produce a highly fermentable wort and use a lager pitching rate, it'll work just fine. You, Drew, what's your take on the whole thing? Um, well, I've done the champagne yeast uh, uh, thing a few times in the past, uh, but it's always been a Hail Mary desperation, please, 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 sweet baby Gambrinus work uh, kind of maneuver. Um, I've never had any luck with it really doing anything except for making my beard taste uh, yeasty and bready. Uh, and the problem is, uh, truthfully, wine yeast, uh, Saccharomyces, uh, what is it? Uh, Saccharomyces baianus, uh, which is a slightly different uh, species, 
than Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Uh, they aren't particularly good at handling higher sugars. So things like uh, maltose and particularly maltotriose. Uh, and it makes sense, right? I mean, it, they've been selected over a period of time of working in simple sugar warts. Yeah, uh, grapes do not make higher sugars. Uh, neither do apples, uh, at least not in any sort of uh, justi uh, justifiably huge quantity that the yeast in question would have to develop those metabolic pathways or use those metabolic pathways. So they're not good at handling the higher sugars. And I would hope that the primary strain that you're using in terms of your beer is going to be capable of handling the simpler glucose, sucrose, fructose, etc. That uh, just like the wine used to be able to. So I think really it comes down to uh, adequate yeast health and adequate yeast populations for when you're doing uh, any sort of fermentation where suddenly champagne yeast may be a concern. And sometimes, you know, it, it may be a matter of you've done something to screw up the or mess up the sugar ratios. Uh, like, for instance, one time I had a beard where I did a 19 hour boil. That beer took forever to ferment out because most of the sugar in it, a good portion of the sugar in it had been converted into sort of caramels and longer chain sugars that the yeast couldn't attack. So uh, I think one of the better sources talking about uh, the behavior of wine yeast uh, is from somebody who knows way more about the subject than I do. And that is actually uh, Shea Comfort's appearance on the Brewing Network Sunday session program uh, from November 23rd of 2008. If you go listen to that, Shea drops a ton of knowledge about wine yeast in that particular episode, and it's totally worth a listen. Yeah, and I've had I've had pretty much the same experience as you have. Uh, number one, I got flavors out of the champagne yeast I didn't care for, and even more important, it, it really didn't work any better than uh, than the beer yeast that I was using. Uh, I don't know where the idea came from that if you have a stuck fermentation to use champagne yeast on it basically you just need to make sure that you pitch enough healthy yeast into your beer when you start follow proper mash and recipe design procedures and the beer will actually ferment out and you won't need the champagne yeast so i would say uh you know there's there's no point in it just just forget it. Forget it. Leave it for the champagne, yep, right? Absolutely. I mean, and again, it goes it goes back to this uh, what we were just talking about before with the uh, uh, the big Belgian saisons and bottling and whatnot. I've done my my champagne style beers. Never once used champagne yeast and never repitched anything because again, I started with a massive amount of yeast, and that's even in a beer that is going to be somewhere between twelve to fourteen percent. And it's going to have to carbonate itself up to ridiculously high levels of carbonation inside of a bottle, which is about the worst test condition you can set up for yeast. So there you go. Don't use the champagne yeast. Yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Next question comes from Mike Adair Jr. via email who says, hey, guys, I guess that's us. You were talking on an earlier episode about getting the full potential of a yeast after it's been through a few or more generations. I was wondering how homebrewers should go about this process. I'm familiar with washing yeast, but I have a few questions. How long should the washed yeast be stored? How long can it be stored? When I want to use it again, do I make another starter? And finally, how do I know how much washed yeast to use for this starter? Okay, I'm going to start off with this one by saying, Mike, just forget the concept of washed yeast. Just, <laughs> there is no point to it, man. Uh, I've done it 
both ways. I've washed yeast. I have not washed yeast. Uh, stored them both. And there was absolutely no benefit to washing the yeast. It was a pain in the butt to do. And it's just one more chance to screw something up and uh, get a contamination into your yeast that will make it uh, unusable later on. So first of all, let's just get rid of the whole washing yeast thing. What I do is I have uh, some half-gallon plastic containers with snap-on lids. I sanitize those, and I pour a third to half of my slurry into each one, depending on how much slurry there is. When I'm racking, I leave some of the beer on top of the yeast so that some of that beer goes in the containers, too, so that the unwashed yeast is sitting in sanitized containers underneath a layer of beer. I simply put those into the fridge and store them. If I use them within, say, two or three weeks, uh, I don't do anything but pull one of those out and uh, pitch it directly into the beer. If it's much longer than that, I'll use maybe two or three tablespoons of that slurry to make a new starter. With that method, I've been able to reuse yeast that I've kept in the fridge for five months, which is not something I recommend you do, but something that has worked for me. Um, so, you know, basically I would say a, a few months you won't have any problems with at all. What's your take, it's pre uh, Pretty much the same. I, uh, I always think of yeast washing as being one of those cool techniques that I'm more likely to screw up than anything else. So... Um, yeah, right. A lot of times, I mean, look, a lot of times I don't even bother saving uh, saving yeast, or if I'm going to do it, I do it pretty much exactly the same day, right? I'll rack out a beer and then, you know, pull it off into a into a sanitized growler, clean up the fermenter, get the new word in there, and return the yeast to it. Uh, is that super ideal? No. There are probably a lot of people out there who are now, you know, clawing their ears off because I've just described a process that is... Uh, close to anarchy for them. <laughs> Fine. Anarchy in, uh, anarchy in the USA. Uh, but that's what I do. If I do hold on to yeast, I do have a couple of uh, really nice uh, lab bottles that I've gotten over the years with really nice screw-on lids. And I'll store the, the yeast in there with a little bit of uh, uh, relief on the lid. And then, yeah, just like Denny, if I'm not using it, I, I tend to be a little bit more persnickety in one way, which is if I'm not using it within about a week, uh, I'll go ahead and I'll make another starter. Now I'm not anywhere near as uh, anal retentive as Denny is about like two to three tablespoons. You know, what I do is I dump out the old uh, wort and then eyeball it and go, yeah, okay, that's enough and make the starter and go. Well, that's what I do too, man. I didn't, I didn't mean to imply that I actually measured it. What I actually do is I uh, pour off the spent beer on top. I look in there, I glop an amount into my starter container that was equal to approximately two or three tablespoons. All right, then there you go. Not nearly as pre not nearly go. as precise as you're pretending to be, Mister Man. Well, I, but I at least estimate precision. There you go. How's that? I, I, I'm I'm semi precise, but yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> having said that, here's here's the big thing. The reason why a lot of homebrewers don't do the multi generation pitch thing, right? If you talk to pros, you'll hear a lot of pros talk about, oh, you know, it's Three generations is where something like uh, 001, for instance, really starts to get in its stride, really kick off fermentation cleanly and give good character. And then how far they take it is all going to be based on how much faith the brewery has in their processes, right? Now, remember, these guys are going you know, and brewing basically every day. So they're doing 
instant transfers and returning the yeast to a, a working environment. We're not doing that as homebrewers. And more importantly, we do also have to realize that no matter how anal retentive you are, we are homebrewers. We do a lot of things out in the open air. We're not doing a lot of closed transfers in a lot of things, which means that we have a lot more likelihood of things being contaminated, even at very low levels. The problem is that those low-level contaminations in those first couple batches will build up over time and contribute a house character or become a very overt house character. So I, even when I feel like I am being super precise about my processes and my, and my sanitation, I still probably won't push it more than about three batches. Yeah, and I'm, that's that's kind of average for me, although I have gone longer. But uh, there's no rule of thumb here uh, other than to pay attention to how the yeast performs in your beer and what the beer tastes like. And if you notice one batch didn't kind of live up to your expectations, then that yeast is out of there and it's time for a new yep. one. Okay, next question comes from Graham Stevenson via email. Graham says, hi, guys. Here's a question I've had on my mind. I wonder if you have the answer. Well, we can make something up yep. at least. Everyone recommends leaving time after fermentation to allow the yeast to clean up after themselves. My question is whether if you bottle post-fermentation, there is any reason this cleanup process won't be as effective in bottles as it will in the fermenter. For example, if cold crashing before bottling... Will the reduction in yeast density in the beer inhibit the cleanup process, even if the beer is given a long enough conditioning in bottles? Or are you likely to get the same result after a certain period of time has elapsed, no matter how quickly you bottle post-fermentation? Okay, here's my answer. Number one, I'm not exactly sure what this yeast cleanup after fermentation is all about. Uh, yes, beer will change noticeably, after the active fermentation is done, if you leave it on in the fermenter, I, I'm, I, I don't know for sure if that's actually the yeast doing anything or not. As to the question about uh, bottling uh, and the cleanup process in the bottle, I would say it, it seems pretty darn unlikely, man. Uh, there is so little fermentation going on in that bottle that uh, I just can't see that uh, there would be any of that cleanup happening if indeed the yeast is cleaning up. I firmly believe it's more a question of time than anything else. So what's your take on it, man? Um, I don't like it. I don't like, uh, uh, and I'm just going to put it out there that I think there are a couple of things that are missing, right? Uh, one, when the, when the beer is in the bottle, as opposed to say in secondary, it's dealing with one thing that is definitely not dealing with in the secondary world, which is pressure. Uh, and pressure changes a whole lot of things for, for yeast. Uh, so I wouldn't exactly count on cleanup happening there. And I'm assuming by cleanup, he's talking about the sort of cleanup of esters and diacetyl and, and all that sort of fun stuff. You know, the things that we really expect, like, you know, the cleanup process for yeast to basically make a righteous beer environment. Uh, so you got pressure is going to mess up that mess up that equation. I don't think it works as well. Uh, I've had experience before with things uh, going back to the story that we were telling earlier about uh, Duval. Duval uh, used to release uh, the beer in the stubby little bottles in seven fifties, and then also three liter bottles. Now I haven't seen the three liter bottles in a while. I haven't been looking, but the three liter bottles when I used to talk with 
professional brewers like Tommy Arthur and uh, Vinny uh, from Russian River, they would swear up and down that the three liter bottles age radically differently than the smaller bottles and that there's a benefit to bulk aging, which sounds like an experiment that we should do. So one, you're going to miss out on that. Two, you're dealing with pressure. Three is, I also think that by not having a long period of time where you can actually allow everything to settle out and depend upon your cleanup happening in the bottles, you are also going to get more sediment in your bottles. And a lot of that sediment is going to be yeast. And one thing that uh, Denny and I have kind of alluded at, but not really uh, said how seriously that we will take it, is despite the fact that we'll say you can leave your beer in a primary for a month, I don't think it's a good idea to leave your beer with a lot of yeast in it for long periods of time, uh, like being in a bottle. All right, and so now miscellaneous. For those questions that we couldn't think of a better place to put them. Uh, first question comes from Tom Gerdes, uh, who wrote in via email. In all of your years of brewing, what are the biggest things that you have learned and or advice that you can give? Denny, you've been doing this a while. <laughs> are you saying I'm old? No, I'm saying you've been doing this for a while. I've been doing it for a while too, but I'm not old. Okay. So uh, I, I wrote down some of my thoughts here for Tom, and uh, basically it's just going to be kind of a bunch of random sentences. So here we go. Things that I think are the biggest things that I've learned. Take good notes. Think things through. Don't freak out. Uh, and I will tell a little story here. Uh, a very good friend, when he was learning to brew, would call me almost every brew session because something would go wrong. I would try and talk him through it. And finally, after about a year of doing that, he called one day with a problem. And I said to him, look, dude, you're smart. Deal with it. And he has told me that's the biggest help that he ever got in terms of brewing advice. So that's kind of what I'm saying here. Take good notes. Think things through. Don't freak out. Deal with it. Don't be afraid to try something everybody tells you won't work. It may or it may not, but find out for yourself. Collect as much information as you possibly can from all sources. Evaluate what makes sense and what doesn't, and then try it yourself. Don't fool yourself when it comes to evaluating your beers or processes. Be objective. Pay attention to what your beer is telling you. Don't expect every batch to go like the last batch. Roll with it. That's my advice for brewing. That's what I've learned in uh, 18 years now this month and 495 batches at this point. All, all I can say to that is, um... <laughs> it is. It's kind of like, uh, okay, grasshopper, snatch this rock from my yeah, hand. You have now been introduced to the Tao of Denny. All right. That's right. Okay, so what's your uh, advice? My advice, I mean, obviously, I think there's a lot of things that we share in common about that, uh, particularly about the don't freak out and, you know, really stop and think and you can always find a way out of the situation. But here's here's what I'm going to say that's a little different. Um, I heavily, heavily encourage uh, every brewer who's out there to go off and find somebody else who's brewing and go brew with them for a day. Go watch what somebody else does. Now, 
sometimes, you know, sometimes you may run into a situation where the person that you're brewing with is doing things in a way that's completely an anathema to what you think about how brewing should be done. But that's good because that helps teach you something about yourself. Uh, it may be teaching you that you are a stubborn jackal, but it's teaching you something about yourself. Uh, and more importantly, if you're going and brewing with other people, you may actually learn something uh, about a different way to approach a problem or a different way to do things. I did, I did this all the time when I first started learning how to brew. And so the way I brew is an amalgamation of, I don't know, probably about 20 different brewers uh, lessons that I did. So totally, by all means, get your butt out there, get your butt into somebody else's brewery. Uh, even teaching somebody else how to brew will uh, teach you some lessons about what it is that you're doing because a lot of times people will have questions and they may challenge you on things that you've never really given a thought to. So by far and away, get out there, brew with other people. It's actually the same thing that uh, inspired the next book, uh, Homebrew All-Stars. So this is the reason why I think it's important because we wrote a book about it and you totally should do it. So brew with others. Yep. That I agree, man. I learned to brew in isolation, and uh, once I started brewing with other people, I was astounded at things they'd thought of that I hadn't. Well, if nothing else, it will tell you, it, it will teach you to relax about your brewing because you will see the number of different ways that people are doing things that they still end up producing drinkable beer out of the end. So, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There are a few wrong ways to brew, and there are a lot of right ways to brew, so. Next question comes from my buddy, Evil Morty, on the Bruise Brothers forum. And Drew, I, I'm going to ask you to try and contain yourself <laughs> on this one. There are so many craft breweries now, and there's talk of a bubble that's ready to pop. In my area, which is New England, I have yet to see a significant number of these breweries shut down, and many of them seem to be expanding. So is the end near, or is the bubble not real? Yay, the bubble question. All right. I promised, I promised yeah. Denny I won't rant because I have a lot of feelings about this. Uh, biggest thing since uh, Denny and I both lived through the previous bubble, uh, both probably as uh, craft beer drinkers because neither of us had started homebrewing by that point. Uh, that was 96 for those of you who are too young to remember. Tastes have changed since the last time uh, we had a big bubble. When things happened in 96, craft beer was still something kind of new and different and weird and people didn't really understand it. Beer was still pale, yellow, fizzy crap. Uh, and it wasn't something to be taken seriously. And it certainly, the food landscape was different. The wine landscape was different. A lot of things have changed between, well, in this last 20 years. So craft beer really is now part of the landscape. And it's also part of, if you look around now, there's this sort of notional nod towards authentic authenticity that matters to a lot of people. Yeah. You know, a lot of people, if you read marketing studies, they tell you, Oh, if you want to reach out to millennials and get millennials to, to appreciate your product, you have to, you have to give them an authentic experience. I don't know what that means, but there you are. This is also, by the way, part of the reason why I'm extraordinarily steadfast about the uh, whole not drinking beer from craft breweries that sell out to big conglomerates. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Thank you. Thank you. Two things that concern me with what I see in the in the market right now. As uh, Evil Morty alluded to, all these breweries are expanding. But some of the stuff I'm hearing out there is that as the capacity has increased, we're also seeing a lot more headspace for contract capacity. So uh, if you don't know, basically a brewery that isn't brewing beer at a time or doesn't have all their tanks full is a brewery that is missing out on money. So a lot of breweries, if they 
uh, have the spare capacity, we'll lease that out to people, right? That's how contract, contract brewing happens. Now, there are some companies out there where contract brewing is the only thing they do, uh, particularly like up in Wisconsin and whatnot, where you have a lot of the old lager breweries that have become just dedicated contract breweries making 30 to 50 to 100 different brands of beer. Uh, but even notionally craft breweries are out there doing some contract stuff. Probably the biggest one that that you all have probably heard about was Firestone Walker. They used to do uh, contract beers for Trader Joe's. They don't do those anymore. Uh, but now they actually are doing contract for Russian River to keep f- uh, fulfilling orders for Plenty of the Elder on draft while Russian River is busy uh, tweaking their brewery. So what I'm hearing out there on the market, though, is that there is a lot of contract capacity that's available at the moment. And that's kind of concerning because that was one of the signs that we saw in 96. Uh, so basically that means there's a lot of breweries out there that have expanded and have at least enough idle time in their tanks that they're willing to lease it out to other people and take in that additional hassle in order to pull in the money. The uh, other thing that concerns me is what I've referred to as skew spamming. Uh, if you don't know what a skew is, a skew is basically a that barcode, right, uh, that you see on every product that's out there. And what I refer to as skew spamming is the Bud Light trick, you know, where Bud Light suddenly introduces, you know, 20,000 different packages and Bud Light Lime and Bud Light Mango and Bud Light Limerita, Bud Light Strawberry Margarita, whatever. And we see it in the craft beer world right now, too. How many different flavor variations are there of Sculpin? Uh, I remember it wasn't that many years ago that Sculpin was a rare thing. It was a special thing. And if somebody had Sculpin, woo! And now it seems like you go into any grocery store and you've got habanero sculpin, pineapple sculpin, blueberry sculpin, mango sculpin, you know, uh, civet coffee sculpin, uh, Denny Con sculpin. Or, 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 yeah, or, or look at Rogue putting the the same beer under three or four different yeah. labels, you know, a, a Morimoto beer, a Rogue beer, a, a Japanese yeah. beer. You so know? I, I, get a, same I, get, I get a little worried when I see that sort of thing because one, not only are you taking up all the shelf space uh, from... Uh, potential other beers being on sale, but it speaks to me of sort of, um, eh, well, I'm going to piss somebody off by saying this, but whatever. Uh, it speaks to me of a certain laziness uh, in terms of we want to have our beer out there in more ways, more variations to catch more of the Nuevo file aspect of craft beer drinkers, but we don't really want to think about it or put a lot of time and risk into it. So I, when I start seeing that, I start to get a little concerned. Now, Having said that, do I think we're going to have the big bubble pop that everybody keeps expecting? No. Do I expect that we're going to lose a lot of breweries uh, sometime in the near future? Probably, but I'll let Denny cover the reason why. Yeah, and I I kind of feel the, the same way. I mean, I keep think, thinking that something has to give, but I don't see a whole lot of evidence of it yet. But like, like you, I can kind of see just the very beginnings. Uh, I can tell you that where I live, there's like about maybe 200,000 people in the entire metro area. Breweries keep opening, but we're also seeing a lot more breweries that are in the what I consider to be the mediocre to poor range. Uh, at this point, because there is such a craze for craft beer, even those are, are finding people uh, to to be their audience, to you know, to to be their customers. But I think it's inevitable that. There's got to be a shake out there. There can only be so many customers. There can only be so much shelf space in stores. Like you, I don't think, well, at least I hope we don't see like a, a, a total crash. 
But I do expect to see a, a reduction in the number of breweries in the next, say, five years or so, or at least not the continued uh, meteoric growth that there has been in the past. Yeah. So, okay. Now that we've now that we've delved into the stuff that we said we weren't ever going to talk yeah. about again, uh, we we have one more. We have a question here from Steve Anderson via the Brews and Views HBD forum, who wants to know. Was there any real scientific analysis of what effect toasting hops had on the finished beer in terms of bitterness, flavor, and aroma? This is something we've touched on uh, just briefly before. Uh, as far as I know, there has not been any analysis of it. Uh, and I'm just, I'm just real curious. I'm never having had a toasted hop beer. I am real curious to find out how that would be any different than a beer that had just used overdried old brown hops. I mean, do you know anything more? No, about and, that, it? And, and the reason why I put this question into the mix uh, was because I kind of wanted to get to that same that same point. I don't get it. I honestly don't get it. I mean, we as a brewing industry and an ingredient industry, they spent have spent so much time dealing with how to properly dry hops in such a way to avoid overheating them all the way to the point where like the pelletizing hammers are liquid nitrogen cooled to preserve oils that I just really don't get it. Um, I mean, the only time I, the only time I can think of doing toasting hops is when you're trying to do the fake out, uh, fake Lambic, uh, hop thing, you know, where you want to have sort of those debittered hops so that you're not getting bitterness at which point in time, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say, you know what, if you want to do that, there are plenty of uh, outlets there that will sell you aged hops for that express purpose that right. are going to be more dependable than anything that you do toasting. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't, again, I'm just trying to even wrap my head around what a toasted hop would be. So, uh, Steve, if you're listening to this, man, give us give us more of your vision of this. Maybe, maybe what you're thinking of as a toasted hop and what we're thinking of a toasted hop are completely different. Uh, on the other hand, maybe they're not. Well, and before we move on to, well, before we move on to the last question, I did want to, uh, put a shout out there for, uh, the old, uh, the old school HBD. Oh yeah. One thing I do if for those listeners who are newer to the hobby and never spent time on the, uh, on the HBD, the HBD stands for homebrew digest. Uh, it's run by, uh, Pat Babcock and, uh, Carl in, up in, uh, Michigan, I think, or Minnesota. I think, I think Carl, I don't think Carl's just, involved just Pat, anymore. No. I think right. Pat's doing it all So, himself. And for yeah. years and years, it was one of the most reliable uh, email forums out there for getting information around. And a lot of the stuff that, that we're actually debating now between like all the various brew science channels that are out there, you know, uh, like us and Brewlosophy, a lot of this stuff was discussed in the past uh, via the HBD. So... Yeah, you know, really, it's a shame. I don't think the email list is running anymore. At least I haven't seen one in in forever. No, it it, it started it started as an email list, a daily email uh, list, many years ago, and now there is a very old school style forum uh, called Brews and Views, and uh, not as active as it used to be. But there are a lot of old time brewers there with a lot of knowledge. And quite frankly, a lot of myths to be debunked too. But it's a it's a great source of information. It can be a great source of information, and uh, it it is uh, one of the most venerable sources out there. It's it's been around since I started brewing, so you know it's a long yep. time. So, so dig into uh, the archives. We're gonna 
Yeah, that's right. We're going to uh, wrap up our Q&A episode with a question from my brother-in-law, Tim Vodder, uh, who wrote to me and said, Denny, I've been listening to the podcast nicely executed, I must say. Keeping peace in the family. That's right. I'm writing to ask you this. I've been back into brewing and doing all grain for about three years now. I've gotten a few awards, but I still feel like I'm just winging it. So how do I get to the next level? More specifically, what single area will improve my beer the most? Boy, have we heard this Mm -hmm. question a lot, huh? Should I concentrate on fermentation and temp control or mashes? Or are there other fundamental areas I can focus on that will help me make better beer? I have a very rudimentary setup. I do not have any fermentation chambers or even a refrigerator set up for kegs. I know this is not a very clear-cut question, but I'm not a very focused person, generally speaking. Ah, Tim, what a great guy. Um, okay, my, my standard answer to this, and what I firmly believe has made the biggest difference to my beer quality, is fermentation temperature control. For many years, I did it with a tub of water, and I would either put ice packs in the water to cool it down, or an aquarium heater into the water to warm it up, and it was pretty effective. It was it was a bit labor-intensive, but it was pretty effective. A couple years ago, I invested in a chest freezer and a temperature controller, and that really took my beers to the next level, I have to admit. And I hate to tell you that you have to go out there and spend money to do it, but that's what made a big difference for me. Not only has the beer quality improved, I get a much faster turnaround on my beers due to the precise temperature control. And keep in mind that if you don't have good fermentation temperature control, you're kind of wasting all the expensive ingredients you bought, uh, all the valuable time that you put into brewing that beer, because after doing all that, the beer will just be left on its own. To, to do what it wants to do, and that's not always the best thing to do. What do you think, Drew? Are you, are you in agreement on that? Yeah, I am. I think, uh, you know, you can cheap out almost anywhere in the entire universe. You can, you know, use, you know, weird malts. You can use uh, extract. You can you can do bad mashes. You can do, I don't know, anything that anything else in the world that you can think that is uh, wrong. But I really do firmly believe that if you don't control your temperatures, even in the rudimentary way that Denny referred to earlier with a water bath and ice packs, which I still do for some of my beers, by the way. Uh, I think you're purposely setting yourself up for failure. Uh, so do something, you know, anything at all, just to, just to give yourself a little bit of temperature control. I remember the first time I got my chest freezer set up and I, and I put a beer in there. I was kind of thinking to myself, oh, you know, that's not going to make that big of a difference. You know, I, I, I do a pretty good job of controlling my temperatures with everything. And uh, no, uh, the, the beer was different as, you know, night and day. So I totally believe in the idea that getting at least some semblance of, uh, temperature control in there is the best possible maneuver you can do. I would actually say, you know what, keep brewing extract beer, you know, and get temperature fermentation control first before you even build a mash done. Even one as cheap and easy as Denny's. Yeah, I, I would, I would have to agree with that, man, because, uh, temperature control will even make your extract beers better and when you go to all grain then you're just giving yourself a real boost right from the beginning so tim i think that we're in green in agreement on that man uh 
Go get yourself a chest freezer and a temperature controller, ferment your beer in it, and I bet you that uh, you will be more than happy with the results. And I will expect you to uh, bring me some of those beers one of these days. <laughs> is, that, is that how he got the question into the mix? It's it's beer bribery? Uh, not not yet, but uh, I'm looking forward uh, to Tim, it. Tim, it sounds like you better produce some good beer, otherwise Denny's going to shun your questions forever. <laughs> no, but I might have to come to Iowa and uh, really take you down. There you go. Yeah, right. All right. Well, hey, guess what, buddy? We survived our first Q&A episode. Whoa. And hopefully our audience did, too. Yeah, no, I've I've lost track of time. I don't know how long long we've been uh, going, but that was our first 20 questions that we've ever tackled uh, as a giant block. Hopefully, it didn't bore you guys to tears. Hopefully, you learned something new. If you disagree with us, or if you have further questions, or you want to elucidate further on a query, or get a query in for the next time that we do questions, uh, remember, every episode we do a small uh, amount of Q&A, uh, but every once in a while we're going to do one of these mega episodes if everybody likes it, then you can feel free to drop us a question at questions at experimentalbrew.com, send us your feedback at podcast at experimentalbrew.com, send us a message on Facebook, find us anywhere that you see Denny or I, and we will gladly take uh, your feedback and notes. And yeah, by the way, Tell us what you thought of this segment. Uh, did we do something right? Did we do something wrong? Is there a, an approach that you thought that we should do better, or are we just rocking the Casbah? <laughs> of course we're rocking the Casbah. We rock. What can Go I clash. say? Yeah, right. Okay. Now, moving on, we're going to talk about something other than beer, because we've been talking about beer for two hours here, so uh, it's time for something else, and today we're going to give a, a little shout-out and tribute to a, a gentleman who passed recently by the name of Ray Tomlinson. Uh, Drew, take yeah, it, Yeah, so uh, I'm a nerd. Hi. Uh, I'm not surprised if if you're shocked by that. I know I'm, I am I give off such a, a worldly sporty air. But, uh, yeah, Ray Tomlinson uh, was not a name that you probably know, but I guarantee you the man affected your everyday life because Ray Tomlinson is more famously uh, known as the man who created the at symbol for email or who decided that the at symbol was going to be what we used for email. So podcast at experimentalbrew.com is entirely due to Ray Tomlinson. Uh, Ray, uh, Ray just died on March 5th, a uh, heart attack at the age of 74. Uh, he was a graduate of both uh, RPI, Rensselaer Poly- Polytechnic Institute in New York, and uh, my alma mater, MIT. And he went to go work uh, in the late 60s for a company that also you probably have never heard of, uh, Bolt, Berenick, and Newman. Uh, at BBN is how it's more commonly referred to. BBN is one of the original creators of the internet or what at the time was known as ARPANET. And so he, uh, yeah, he, he created the at sign because at that point in time, he, uh, if you wanted to do emails, which was a relatively new thing, of course, uh, you had to do all sorts of manual typing of routing in it to tell the email servers how to send your email around the world. And so uh, Tomlinson decided to simplify it and chose the at symbol because why not? And so because of that, he... Uh, I think if I remember correctly, there was a joke that he said when uh, about about the whole decision that if he'd known that it was something that was he was going to become known for, he would put more thought into it. But he was he's also known for having an opinion about things like uh, whether or not email was one word or a hyphenated word uh, to the point where he gave an interview. He said, 
that he prefers email as one word, so no hyphen, uh, because he is just trying to conserve the world's supply of hyphens. So <laughs> I got to I got to meet Ray once uh, a long time ago uh, when I was in college, and he was a very very nice uh, old school geek uh, who I think would be uh, somewhat surprised at the fact that people still remembered the at sign and his contribution to it. Cool. Well, thanks, Ray. We all owe you a bunch, man. So uh, we we appreciate yeah. it. Oh, and can I, and wait, now can I can I throw in another uh, another death? I think we need to talk about. Uh, I also want to put a shout out there. You know, we uh, support uh, the Freedom Service Dogs of America charity, and Denny and I are both dog lovers. But also, in sad news, we have just learned that Mooney, aka Bruiser Woods, aka the Chihuahua from Legally Blonde, passed away uh, this past week at the age of eighteen. And it was actually, really, and it was actually really nice. Reese, Reese Witherspoon actually uh, put up an Instagram message uh, of a picture of her and Bruiser or Mooney, uh, re- reminding people of the fact that uh, Mooney was such a great little dog. Uh, so I thought that was rather nice. That's cool. And eighteen years is that's a good. The, run. That's the Chihuahuas for you. Yep, that's right. So. It's time for the question of the week. I can't believe it. We actually get to ask a question now. I, you know, I'm kind of like stunned and speechless, but of course I'm not. So, so here's our question of the week, which is what did you think of our Q and a episode? Did we get to your question? Did we give you a good answer? Did we totally screw something up? Let us know, review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast place. All right. So now it's time to talk about what we talked about. Because we haven't talked enough. Remember, uh, by the time that this episode comes out, uh, there will be an article on the website about session beers. And yes, I'm saying that again and again because it will force me to remember to put it up. Uh, We also talked about everybody else's feedback about the session beer thing and how, uh, so far, I've been rather pleasantly surprised that we've gotten no negative feedback about the idea of session beers. So, awesome. Brew them. They're good. Uh, And drink them. They're also good. Uh, We also talked about pinkwashing and why you shouldn't do it. And we talked a little bit about the Pacific Nor- Northwest Homebrewers Conference and uh, what uh, we, we hope to see going forward. And Denny, I think you recorded content at the conference, right? Yeah, I, uh, I managed to get an- interviews with Annie Johnson and Rodney Kibsey, and we will be running those on some upcoming so episodes. There you go. More, uh, more content coming from a conference. Uh, and let's see. Uh, what else did we do? What else did we Oh, that's right. We answered all the questions <laughs> in the universe. Okay, may, well, that's maybe right, not. Yeah. I'm sure there are more. And don't forget, get them in so that we can answer them and try and actually cover all the questions in the universe. That's right. We've a- we've answered these questions. So it's time for you guys to start thinking up some more. And I know that they're going to be more difficult as we go. So uh, time time to put us to the test. So I just want to thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter or Facebook or wherever you happen to be. We're around there. Uh, If you need to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or rant and rave at us, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to email us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. So uh, until the next episode, remember, brew experimental. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.